Film critic Jeff Andrew of Time Out Magazine hailed this movie as scary, touching, often hilarious, and surprisingly enchanting. Chicago Sun-Times critic Roger Ebert called it a disorganized, rambling, and eccentric movie that contains some moments of truth, some moments of humor, and many moments of digression. And Peter Travers of Rolling Stone said, So what if it's not perfect? It's magic. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of the Fisher King. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhoods Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters! Hey, everybody. Hello! Ruined Childhoods. Is that your I am a uh, a medieval knight? Yeah, yeah, Uh, it was kind of that gallant, it was the gallantry. Yeah, that kind of ties in to our uh, Fisher King episode this week. Yeah, I know. I'm excited to talk Fisher King. Yeah. And this is Ruined Childhoods. Welcome. Welcome. My name um, my name is John. That's Dan. We're talking about Colton classic movies that we either love, are curious about, that we know are good, but maybe we need to rewatch them and talk about what would happen should they be brought back in the future. Yeah. Again. When such things can happen. When, when such we have things movies. can happen. <laughs> You know, thing production. Well, we is do happening. have movies. We do, yeah, we do have movies, and um, you know, a, we have a lot of exciting streaming content. So it's kind of like if there was ever a time in history to be quarantined, it is at a time when content producers can produce content and people can see it, and people right. can enjoy it, and people can pay for it. It is more accessible than ever. Yeah, uh, this is the the time of year that a lot of people in the entertainment industry know to be screener season. And uh, as a member of the Producers Guild, I have been getting screeners for years. But this year, uh, so far, everything's been digital. And a lot of it has been things that have been very publicly available. (laughs) Things that have gone straight to... Disney, HBO, you know, HBO Max, Disney Plus, Netflix, Amazon. Um, Mm. The one thing that I did watch the other night that I don't think was has been on anything is Ammonite. The uh, Saoirse Ronan, uh, Kate Winslet, uh, Forbidden Lesbians on a Rocky Shore movie. I mean, I know I don't think that I I think it's been available like, you know, 1999 on iTunes, but not. Right, not via a subscription. Like Borat, having Borat two available oh, on Prime what a was treat. a gift. What a treat! Absolutely, a gift. Yeah, and so, a lot of things. Spike Lee's latest film, which I I've not gotten around to because I've not been in the mind frame for right, a, a Vietnam movie, but it's yeah. like right there, right right there on my radar. Yeah, on our last episode, we talked about the wonderful Hal Ashby film, Harold and Maude. I I don't have any one more things about it. I feel like we covered a lot of ground. Dan, did you have anything? No, other than that, when I, after we had had that discussion, I went and was looking at the reviews to record 
the mm. intro. Yeah. And was, I don't know if surprised is the word. I don't know if disappointed is the word, but it's a mix of the two. I was disurprised that, Although that just sounds like I wasn't surprised. Anyway, right. I'm not going to bother with that right now. Yeah. I was, I the the critics, it was not well received. The critics were basically like, meh, eh, like what exactly is happening here? This is just like, they were very blah about it. Yeah. I think that it, that one definitely took some time for people to really appreciate and I think that especially once you got past, like, well past the 70s, it kind of became like a, you know, like a, a comfort movie for a lot of people, something to look back to for the style. It took a lot of time for people. Also, I mean, and this isn't really so much of a thing about the critics, but more about how well it did in the theaters, but like, they had a hard time marketing it. I mean... It's really hard to convince somebody to see a movie about a 20-year-old and an 80-year-old getting together without like ex- like over explaining what the movie's really about. Yeah. And I get that. On the other hand, it was 1971, like everything was crazy. But <laughs> that's what they're going to say about 2020. But that's what they're currently saying about 2020. That is what we're currently saying about 2020, right? Um, but yeah, so I just I felt like I also felt like a lot of what I saw in the in the reviews that was critical of the film, they they pointed out things that I think you and I both liked and thought like things that they were like were overstated. Mm. We had specifically like the number on her arm. Oh, we talked about how it was just like that one brief moment where you see it. Meanwhile, I forget which critic I was reading. Um, it sounded really snooty, but they were like, Oh, and how it just lingers there. And haven't we seen this before? And lingers there. Oh, I was just like, it's like half a second. That's really surprising. Uh, on that subject, we had talked about the the Amazon show Hunters because I mm-hmm. was talking a little bit about, you know, post-Holocaust, uh, you know, Holocaust survivors. And I was talking more about, like, in the days and weeks after um, the the end of the war and the, and the camps closing down. But uh, Hunters, of course, takes place several, several, I mean, a, couple, a few decades later. And... I so I started watching Hunters. I'm a few episodes in, and uh, I, it it's okay. There are things it, about it that I like, but there's things about it that kind of rub me the wrong way. There's enough to get you through an episode. It's there's not enough to make you sit there and watch the next two episodes, which is the experience right. I've been having with Fargo. Hmm. Yeah, going back to that, finished season three, and I need to take a break because I'm j- like. I'm obsessive. I'm turning it on on my phone when I'm like making meals. Uh, when I'm like, I'm like, I'm gonna go clean the car, and an episode of Fargo later, the car is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing about the Fargo series is that I feel like when I'm watching it, that's one where I'm not on my phone while I'm like, I can't do anything else while I'm watching it because I'm get so sucked in. And then if I realize that I start diddling on my phone, then I'm like, oh. What did I just miss? And I have to go back. I've done that a few times because I've uh, time and again done some some work, some just like some data entry 
while watching episodes and then I'll realize, oh, what, how, huh? What, how did yeah. we get here? What did this What's ha- happening? What? what? David Thewlis? Always oh, delivers. Always delivering the goods. I was, I was thinking about how grateful I was for David Thewlis in the Harry Potter series because mm. it's just, he he's, of all the Harry Potter characters, really, like, one of the most, aside from being a werewolf, normal, you know, he's just, like, a really good guy. Sure, and yeah. And then you see him in in season three of Fargo, and... Oh, Great villain. Amazing, yeah. amazing. So, anyway. there, there's a few bits of um, of remake news I wanted to talk about. It has been reported that there are... There's forward movement on a short circuit remake. Not many details on that. There's some writers. I wasn't familiar with who they are, but they have some writers locked in. Um, And also there's going to be a new Predator movie. And the only thing that really stood out to me is that it is kind of not considering the one that came out a couple years ago, I think 2018, which I actually liked. Was that that was the... um... Isn't oh. it just called Predator? Yeah, Predator. What was the... I can't remember his name who did it. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, the nice guys. Oh, Shane Black. Shane Black. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I liked it. A lot of these movies that had, I don't know, that, that came up in the in the 80s and were just such like, I don't know, iconic movies in that genre. Clearly, Predator has had a long life after its uh, original and... Uh, a lot of them can just feel pretty schlocky and not well thought out. But I thought that the latest one is pretty good. It's, you I know, s- I rem- compared to the original, it's it's comparing an okay apple with a really good apple. <laughs> it's to say one of them is really good, one of them is okay. <laughs> just, just, I want everyone to know because you can't see what I'm seeing I wish I had taken a screenshot of John's face as he was coming up with the proper <laughs> analogy there. The bad analogy. And I was like, where is he going to land with this? <laughs> I was like, the, like the wheel was, the roulette wheel was spinning. It was like, apple. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, exactly. You have your, your was, honey crisp and then you have your like, you know, golden delicious. I don't know. I took a moment to think about it though. And I was like, Apple's probably the right scale for Predator. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's what's going on in the world. Another Predator movie, another short circuit. Yeah. And who did I hear was working on the new Predator? It was someone I was like, oh, that that could be interesting. Uh, Dan Trachtenberg, who did 10 yes. Cloverfield Lane. Yeah. Oh, which, which, I, which uh, I liked. I didn't see that one, but I heard that's like of the Cloverfield movies, the best one. I've only seen the original Cloverfield, which I liked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I liked it. Yeah. Good movie. Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Excellent. John Goodman. Excellent. Yeah. Honestly, I heard it was just really creepy and. Totally. I've had the, that's why I've had pause about watching it. But, oh, next time I, I, I have the opportunity, I might give that one a shot. So, Dan, when you were saying that, you know, while I was coming up with that amazing Apple analogy, when you were saying that you wished that you could have taken the screen grab, I was wondering if it was because I currently have my hair done exactly like the Fisher King's Jack Lucas. 
And actually, this I I am gonna take a, a screen grab because I, of that. Because the, oh, and the evening when we were recording this, I did an Instagram story on our uh, Instagram account at Ruin Childhoods Pod. But by the time this comes out, it will be long gone. But um, it is terrible. <laughs> right, right down to the strand. Oh yeah, you got to get the little strand in the front. Well, it was a uh, you know a focus on the commentary track that I watched on the uh, the Criterion mm-hmm. Blu-ray. Yeah. Did you watch the the commentary? Of course I did. I watched it, uh, you know, regular style. And then the next night I watched it commentary style. And I watched it regular style first just because it's it had been a while since I had seen it. And I was like, you know what? I love this movie. I'm thankful for it. This, this is the month of movies that we're thankful for. And this is a movie that I'm thankful for. Because I feel like it got me into weird movies. Like, it was maybe one of the first movies that I saw that was, like, off-kilter, but still a little mainstream. But it kind of gives you the entry into, you know, things like people like David Lynch. I don't know, movies that are just a little bit more bizarre. And uh, Terry Gilliam, somebody who's a piece of garbage, but great director... Um, it's, it's conflicting to, to really watch his stuff now just because, and listening to his commentary track was just like, ugh, I know you're a, you're a slime ball, but yeah, real yeah. like misogynist, real misogynist I, in the commentary. I didn't care for some of the ways that he talked about, I don't know, Mercedes rule and, and her acting and, and it was like. He tried to come off seeming like the good guy, but in reality, it's like, no, you just weren't being an ally right there to uh, this incredible, incredible actress. So we might as well, since we're on we're on the topic of it right now, kind of talk about, you know, on the scale of how comfortable am I watching this person's work, knowing what I know about them and also Mm -hmm. being older because um, for me, I I definitely thought about that, and especially listening to him talk and trying to really focus on the artistic aspects of what he was saying and mm-hmm. trying to kind of filter out the nonsense. So where I came to it is that I think I can still appreciate through maybe 12 Monkeys. Right, I, yeah. I think I can kind of go with 12 cuz I watched 12 Monkeys not too long ago as well and It's a great movie. Um I have to give a shout out to David one of Morse? my I, no, I'm no <laughs> Well, I always have to give a shout out to David Morse. Uh but in addition to David Morse, that should be understood. Shout out to the student in my class that I had today who when we were discussing archetypes in in fiction referenced Jeffrey Go- Goings in 12 Monkeys. Wow. Yes. Well, all right. I, I'm going to shout out a few of my students right now. This one was the relevant one, but I also had in discussing the archetype of the, I think it was like the sage, like the mm-hmm. the advisor, the coach. And I quote, we went from, it was that guy in point break, dot, 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 Gary Busey. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I'm like, and I'm sitting there reveling in the fact that we're talking about Gary Busey. In- That's two <laughs> meatball subs. Two. In Utah, two. Nice, nice. Wow. I'm impressed. Yeah. And so, of course, on the, because I was putting some of the student suggestions up on the the slide that I'm using to teach because I'm teaching all remote. And I did put uh, Agent Agent Pappas yeah. slash Pappas. Gary Beasley. I, I can't just hold back and pretend like I don't right. know the name. You have to so. let that kid know that, yeah, you know who he's talking about and you know a little bit more. Uh, yeah. So the FBI is going to pay me to learn how to surf. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, okay. So also Pee Wee Herman, Pee Wee Herman, the same student actually was really making an effort with like everywhere. And every time they suggested Pee Wee Herman, I kept saying, let's hold off on Pee Wee Herman. Yeah. We'll get there. And then when we finally got there, I was like, all right, now is your, like, yes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Pee Wee Herman. Was that like man child? I, I don't know. What What <laughs> was, was the, the, uh, the, the jester? Archetype? The jester. The jester. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Like the, you know, okay. tricks. Well, they first were, they were trying for the archetype of the innocent. And we thought about it and we're like, well, hmm. Pee Wee likes to play. He has pranks. And like, even though he's a man child, he still kind of has like this kind of off sense of humor and yeah. especially in like big top peewee. He's, he's kind of a lech. Oh and yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I didn't bring that up, but I was just kind of like, eh, he can be kind of a dick sometimes. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And that's part of his man child charm. Cause children are dicks. Yeah. True. <laughs> so yeah, we're talking uh, – so I, I also want to give a, a plug to another podcast. Uh, I don't know if they've covered anything with Terry Gilliam, but there's a podcast called Fanti that's uh, all about the things that you're a fan of, but there's a, a reason to be anti. You know, uh, maybe there is somebody who's like anti-me too, like Terry Gilliam, um, but you are a big fan of their work. So it it falls under that category. I, I, just, but we were saying, it, like, on the scale, it's like, yes, there is a yeah. limit that to which you, you can – I mean, it's like you'd have to be thinking about all of Monty Python and Brazil and Baron Munchausen. You know, there's just a, a huge – It doesn't yeah. – it like, when you weigh it on the scale, like, for me, Woody Allen, per se, like – Right. Like, there was a dip for a while, and then more, Yeah, I learned more, more, or, you know, you know, allegedly. And then it got to the point where I'm like, you know what, I don't even think, I I think the last one I watched was Annie Hall, Mm -hmm. and I I was kind of able to do that, and because I'm directing a radio play right now, I'm directing Mm -hmm. the Twilight Zone radio dramas via Teams, I, I this is really exciting because every day I'm just figuring new shit out. Right. But because and because I'm directing that, I thought about radio days. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I said to my cast. I was I mean, and you don't see you hear Woody Allen because he narrates right. it, but you it's Seth Green. That's who you see. Yeah. Um, and it's got so many other great performances in it from Wallace Shawn, Mia Farrow. Right, um, and just uh, talking about Diane Mia Farrow. Weist. Diane Weist is so good. Talking about Mia Farrow real quick, you know, on the last episode of the podcast, I put in a clip of Ruth Gordon from Rosemary's Baby, which meant 
looking back at some old Rosemary's Baby clips and it's like, man, what a fucking amazing movie. I really wish that Roman Polanski wasn't the monster that he is. Yeah. So where, where, where's Roman Polanski, where does Roman Polanski's filmography fall on the scale for you? Well, that's the thing is Rosemary's Baby was after he was known to have committed this atrocity. I think that it was like a couple years before. I thought Rosemary's Baby was before that. I thought Chinatown was after that. Chinatown is definitely after it. I think that well, yeah. Rosemary's Baby was right around, either right around that time. Maybe? Rosemary's Baby is sixty-eight. Is it sixty-eight or sixty-nine? I don't remember. Uh, sixty-eight. It's difficult because, yes, it was like Roman Polanski is a terrible human for the things that he's done, and no, he hasn't been like completely put out to pasture he's still been active what's up so according to wikipedia so facts he was charged on march 10th 1977 oh charged he was charged right i am looking right now for when this might have happened but uh nope it took it happened yep in March 1977 oh at right and i remember hearing it was at jack nicholson's house but jack nicholson Ugh. wasn't there jack nicholson was with angelica houston mm-hmm. on a ski trip according to wikipedia mm. and it was just roman polanski and um this 13 year old girl yeah that were there and like drinking champagne and and taking pictures and yeah. he you know, totally drugged her and raped her and he's a piece of shit. Yep. And mm-hmm. I can, I can, I could, I haven't watched Rosemary's baby in a long time, but I think I could, especially cause he's not in it. I have watched Chinatown in the recent mm-hmm. past and it wasn't a distraction for me. It, the way I feel I just, about it, is like I feel like I could watch each one of those one more time and know that it's my last time and be good with it. Yeah, that's it's like I'm saving them for when we do them for the podcast. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so going back to Terry Gilliam, uh, yeah, he's just—it's just that he's said really insensitive and stupid things. You know, anti Me Too stuff. He recently said something like. Uh, just tired of white men being blamed for everything, and it's yeah. like. Ugh. That's where he is now. And it's especially sad because he is such like a counterculture related person, especially when you think of Monty Python, but even a a film like Brazil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Brazil is out there. But even the messages of Brazil and Mm -hmm. and the tone of Brazil, Mm -hmm. it's just kind of sad to see him as just like, you know, crotchety old man now who although like even on the commentary for fisher king like you said he's pretty condescending and especially in regards to mercedes rule but he's condescending and he also uh, he just like pats himself on the back 
time and time again. He's so proud of yeah. the decisions that he made. And he does give credit where credit is due when other people, you know, lend things to the project, whether it's Robin Williams or uh, Amanda Plummer well, or yeah. the costume designers. Costume he design. Does, yeah. He does reference a lot of those people and talks about how, like uh, Richard LaGravenez, the screenwriter, being mm-hmm. on the set. So- yeah, so now that we've now that we've talked about and clarified how much how up his own ass Terry Gilliam is <laughs> yeah. and how how much he has like dislocated his shoulder patting himself on the back. <laughs> we are we are now going to throw a little praise his way because it's a brilliant movie. The Fisher King is a brilliant movie. It's a brilliant and movie. I it's one of my favorites. I I will continue to watch this movie. Uh, and until we find out that he's done something really bad, you know, I, I think that's where I am with it. Well, that's the more, you know, exactly. The more you know. So why don't I get into a little synopsis and then we can break it down. Um, as always, this contains spoilers. And as always, I, I'm leaving out a lot that we'll come back to later. Jack Lucas is a loudmouthed radio shock jock living on the top of the world in New York City, and he's about to achieve his dream of starring in a sitcom about a radio DJ. But all plans are thwarted when one of his regular callers takes his kill the yuppies stance a little too literally and shoots up a bougie Manhattan restaurant. This sends Jack into a multi-year depression, resulting in his hiatus from the spotlight and into the arms of Anne, a video store owner who falls in love with him despite the fact that he's a suicidal alcoholic. One night, when Jack is at his lowest, he attempts to drown himself in the East River just under the Manhattan Bridge. But two young punks have a different idea. They'd rather beat him to death. But then, out of nowhere, a white knight appears and uses his quick wits and a rock-filled sock to scare the punks off. This is Perry, a jovial homeless fellow with a positive outlook and an obsession with the medieval. After bringing Jack down into his boiler room hideaway, Perry tells Jack all about his quest to retrieve an item from a local billionaire who was photographed for a magazine in his home, standing in front of an ornate chalice that Perry believes to be the Holy Grail. As he is leaving, the building's maintenance man tells Jack that Perry used to live in the building, but went mad when a gunman opened fire in a restaurant and killed his wife right in front of him. Jack immediately puts the pieces together and believes that he will be safe from his own demons if he helps out Perry. At first, he tries to give Perry some money, but that's not important to him. Then, Perry shows Jack the thing that he cares about the most, a mousy reader at a publishing company who loves just about nothing except romance novels, dumplings, and jawbreakers. Jack has a new mission now. Get Perry and his dream girl together. With reluctant assistance from Anne, Jack tracks down the woman's information and tricks her into thinking that she won a contest for a free membership to Anne's video store. After their first encounter, the woman, whose name is Lydia, turns out to be very rude and put off. She notices Anne's custom nail job, and a plan is made. Anne will do Lydia's nails while Jack gussies up Perry in an effort to get the post-manicure double date in the works. They go out to a Chinese restaurant and have the best time. Lydia and Perry really hit it off, while Jack and Anne sit proudly with their accomplishment. Thinking that the curse has been lifted, Jack makes arrangements with his agent to come back to work. What Jack doesn't know is that all the while, Perry, who just shared a first kiss with Lydia, 
has been assaulted by the punks from the Manhattan Bridge and is now in a coma. Once Jack finds out, he becomes angry with Perry and decides to move on with his life, but it's not so simple. During a meeting with a TV executive to get Jack on board with a new sitcom showing the lighter side of homelessness, Jack realizes that his work is not yet done. He has to give Perry the thing he wants, the Holy Grail. Jack loads up on Perry's personal items and clothing to scale the wall of the billionaire's New York City castle so that he can break in and get the Grail. He is surprisingly successful, but then discovers that the billionaire has overdosed on some sort of prescription medication. In an act of bizarre kindness, Jack walks out of the front door so that the alarm can go off and someone can save the man. Jack delivers the grill to Perry, causing him to wake from his coma. He's finally able to confront his past trauma and move on with his life. The experience has also cured Jack, but in more ways than he expects. He is cured of being a total asshole. He even is finally able to do what he hasn't been able to do before, tell Anne that he loves her. So Perry is played by Robin Williams, brilliantly. Uh, Robin Williams' penis uh, plays the role of Perry's penis, uh, Jeff Bridges is so good as Jack Lucas. Mercedes Rule the, wins the uh, Best Supporting Actress Oscar, uh, playing Anne. Amanda Plummer plays Lydia. Michael Jeter steals the movie with his performance as a uh, a, a homeless man who's a, uh, I guess, former cabaret singer, a showman, if you will. He is so wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Kathy Najimy has a great cameo as a uh, a video store patron. David Hyde Pierce is the agent. Uh, we've got a uh, a very brief appearance by Harry Shearer as the guy who, d- who ends up getting the the sitcom role that Jack uh, didn't get because that was the night that uh, his his listener shot up the restaurant. So yeah, Dan, yeah. what a movie. Um, so. I want to start by just talking about this is one of those movies that when even just hearing, listening to you talk about it and yeah, I've watched it recently and I watched it once with, with the commentary and then I was kind of watching it in bits and pieces without the commentary over the Mm -hmm. last few days. But, and, and it, and it has maybe been a couple of years since I last saw it. Mm-hmm. And then before that, probably another couple of years, but it is always since the first time I saw it, I can picture it in my yeah. head and the feeling that I get, it takes me back. And it was one of those movies that like, it was a fall movie, not a <laughs> like winter, not like a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. It was released in October. I remember going to see it in nice. October Back when I would go, oh, yeah, at the Rialto Theater in Westfield, New Jersey. (laughs) Excellent. And I remember, in fact, I'm pretty sure like we were sitting towards the front of the theater because I I definitely remember that I had no trouble seeing Robin Williams' penis during the (laughs) cloud bursting scene. Right. And, but man, yeah, like you were saying before, kind of the the entree into weird movies and i don't know if this is like you know the ground zero for that for for me mm-hmm. but it could it could be and it's close and right. 
I remember just seeing this and feeling, you know, to go back to the Gene Siskel quote, this is why we love movies. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, it just, it applies. It applies because it does, it, it tells, it's one of those movies that tells a story using film in a way that, that eh, at, at, definitely not at the time, most likely not at the time, but, you know, couldn't really be told other than in a novel in the form of a right. of a novel or a graphic novel but this wasn't the type of thing you were going to see on t- and also the the mix of like you said mainstream and the fact that like this was a Robin Williams movie and it right. was this Robin is the same Williams year that Hook came out the same year that it was like a month or two before Hook came out mm-hmm. and it's Jeff Bridges kind of yeah. the you know the everyman He's so good. Or the in this. star man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's uh he's so good in this. I feel like he kind of can't do wrong for me. I'd like to thank Jeff Bridges, a man who should be declared a national treasure. The movie is when I think about it, and it certainly is in my top five of nineteen ninety-one, which if you look at movies that came out in nineteen ninety-one, right? You could make a solid top five out of most well, of them. yeah, I mean, just to quickly go over some of the act, like we mentioned that Mercedes Rule uh, won Best Supporting Actress, so she beat out Juliette Lewis in Cape Fear, which I watched recently. It's so good. Other Also in that category was Rambling Rose, The Prince of Tides, and Fried Green Tomatoes. So um, Robin Williams was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Anthony Hopkins for Silence of the Lambs, which that's tough competition right there. That's a really tough tough one to go up against although it's crazy because anthony hopkins has i mean was it under 30 minutes of screen right. time in that movie but, not that he does not deserve the yeah i yeah well that's the thing sorry go ahead you're, you're well gonna i was keep just gonna say and, and, and this yeah. is what we talk about when we talk about like the hindsight awards something like anthony hopkins and silence of the lambs it stands the test of time is well deserved people still remember him from that people are still chilled when thinking about him anytime somebody my uh i have somebody who comes to clean my place every every now and then and she has a cat named clarice and i was like clarice and she's like oh yeah there's no other way of saying the name clarice um so this year's also thelma and louise um you've got beauty and the beast uh (laughs) you know there's some just amazing movies that came out this year Bugsy is another one that i've watched recently jfk which is um definitely in my top 10 of all time. JFK, that didn't really show up in a lot of the Oscar categories, if any. What uh, nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, oh, Best Supporting Actor, even, Best Actor. I think that I just glossed over those because they oh, yeah. weren't uh, important to me. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Tommy I think Lee Kevin Jones. Costner. It's arguably Kevin Costner's best performance. I think so. I think so. Um, but I and I I don't want to go off. The point is when I think back to 1991, and I think I wish Fisher King had been nominated. I try to think of what I would take off that best picture list. Yeah, and I it, it's so hard. I think ultimately, I would I go with Bugsy. Uh huh. It's yeah. kind of like Beauty and the Beast is an accomplishment. It it set the new standard in many ways. So I cannot, I can't argue with that being 
included as a best picture nominee. It might not be in my top five of the year, mm-hmm. but I agree it belongs there. But what do you take out? Silence of the Lambs? No. That is timeless. No, and there's something about the Fisher King that where it's like you you want it to be recognized, but you don't want it getting like all of the attention because it, there's something about it that feels comforting knowing that it's like your movie and Mercedes but, rule f- for sure deserved that Oscar. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But just to go back to Robin Williams, mm-hmm. where I stand on the Robin Williams Oscar and, and, but he was nominated several times mm-hmm. um, in for best actor. And then I think just once for best supporting and he won it. But I was thinking about his performance in Goodwill Hunting, which, by the way, that character also came up in the archetype discussion. Nice. And so someone referenced him by name. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I was really impressed by these kids. Yeah, that's great. And and their their knowledge of 80s and 90s pop culture. So they'll all do wonderfully. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, but I was thinking about it compared to his performance in Goodwill Hunting. And I was like, I think... He won the Oscar in Goodwill Hunting for the way he talked about what he does mm-hmm. in The Fisher King. Right. Yeah. Uh you know, going going to see about a girl. <laughs> yeah. The little idiosyncrasies that only I knew about. That's what made her my wife. Boy, and she had the goods on me too. She knew all my little peccadillos. People call these things imperfections. But they're not. Oh, that's the good stuff. And then we get to choose who we let into our weird little worlds. You're not perfect, sport. And let me save you the suspense. This girl you met, she isn't perfect either. But the question is whether or not you're perfect for each other. That's the whole deal. That's what intimacy is all about. You know, it's that and more. And it's also 1991 was the year of... Um, the best actor nominees with uh, mental health issues, whether it was um, Nick Nolte in Prince of Tides right. suffering, you know, that that abuse from that childhood trauma, which Prince of Tides is another fantastic movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Nominated that year. Um, you go to De Niro in Cape Fear. Enough said. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. H- Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Bugsy Siegel. Right. Mm-hmm. And then if yeah, and then Kevin Costner as you know, I'm blanking. I'm totally, on the, I don't know the name. Jim Garrison as Jim Garrison. You know, I mean, not you know to the extreme, but obsessive. Sure, sure. Obsessive in that movie. So anyway, that's my riff on on ninety one. <laughs> but like, you could be Terminator Two came out that year. Soap Dish came out mm, that year. Yeah. Um. Like so many other things that could be on anyone's top five, top 10, indisputably. Right. So uh, just to kind of go back to the plot, there there are certain things that I want to come around to. So, yes, we're describing uh, Perry, Robin Williams' character, who experiences this this really intense trauma. You know, his, his wife was killed right in front of him. And we see that in... Uh, you know, dreams or flashbacks. And it's something that he clearly is completely blocking out. He's actually not even going by his real name. He's he's using a, a different name. And any time that he comes close to confronting his past, he is visited 
in his mind by this red knight on horseback who shoots out these fireballs. And, you know, the first time that we see it, he kind of chases it through Central Park. And um, I, I, I can't remember all the times that he sees it, but it ultimately leads to the right after he first kisses Lydia and he really flashes back to the the experience that he had and the knight comes and chases him and then he you know it kind of is appears in the way of that those two punks by by the river and he's just kind of like just just do it end it end it and uh you know thinks that it's the knight but it's it's the those punks i don't know what else to call them well which and um just random trivia one of those punks is played by Dan Futterman, who later, mm. five years later, plays Robin Williams' son in The Birdcage. The Birdcage. And then later on gets nominated for, I think, writing the screenplay for Capote. Oh, really? I, I, I loved Capote. Yeah, I mean, I'm riffing. Capote's fucking great movie. Yeah. Goddamn Philip Seymour Hoffman. I know. Uh, so a couple of observations. So first of all, the name Parry. Mm-hmm. Which is a defensive move, in, yeah, fencing in move, fencing and yeah. sword fighting. So it's his. It's clearly his defense because the first time that he, when he sees the red, the red knight, and it's across from Central Park, is when Jack is trying to, is just kind of bluntly and tactlessly telling him like Perry, that's Perry, or whatever your name Jack. is. You know, none of this is true. The Jack, grail, the voices. Jack, Jack, there's can't... a part of you that knows it's not true. I think we have to start planning now. Perry, Jack. listen to me. Jack. Jack. You're acting weird, Jack. I know who you are. You're an intelligent... Jack! Let's go of me, Jack! No! Perry! You're a teacher! Perry! And you see, and... Man, Robin Williams' performance is so, so heartbreaking and incredible because you see him as the defense is is letting go. And it's it's interesting because he's got his defense. Jack has his defenses, which mm. slowly are he's he's slowly disarmed by right. by Perry. It's like Anne can't do it, but Perry can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which which is there's definitely that like hint of resentment oh totally she thinks that uh he's off with some other woman but actually he's laying in the middle of central park with a naked <laughs> parry uh just listening to him jack talking. lucas found in central yeah. park next to a man the man <laughs> was naked so uh, yeah, yeah and it's it's really fascinating because as much as he kind of claims that he wants to just be done with parry he is just sucked into this life that he has. And, you know, there's the day when they're in Grand Central Station and he's talking to Tom Waits's character, the disabled veteran. And that whole exchange is really fascinating. And Jack is just kind of sitting on the ground of Grand Central Station just next to him. And the the way that, like you said, like his defenses are down and he's really absorbed by this this culture. And and he's really listening. He's really listening. And there are moments when he really, really listens. And you look like you want to say something. I, yeah, because I do. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't want to interrupt you. 
I, I mean, I could just keep on going and going and going and, you know, segue well, into a thousand different things right now. I wanted to connect it back to the scene when he's in the hospital and he's kind of cradling Michael Jeter. Oh, yeah. And and there's that moment when he says, did 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 you like gradually lose your mind or did it just happen all at once? And and Michael Jeter just kind of goes into this like really sad. It's not a f- real monologue, but was it he starts with like I'm, I'm a singer, singer by, by trade. trade. Summer stock nightclub reviews, that sort of thing. And God, I absolutely lived for it. I can do gypsy. Every part. I can do it backwards. <laughs> but then one night, right in the middle of singing funny, suddenly it hit me. What does all this mean? I mean that plus the fact that I'd watched all my friends die. Sound like a veteran, don't I? <laughs> Oh, Dad would be so proud of me. Hey. It's this moment where you kind of really see that he cares. He cares about somebody else. Right. The way that the way that he does make physical contact with these people is is really fascinating. Um and another thing that I wanted to point out, and, and this is something that came up in Terry Gilliam's commentary, only a little, and I feel like there was a lot more to explore there. But he mentions how in the scene where they're laying down in Central Park, you know, first of all, Terry Gilliam is known for wild camera movements and really bizarre angles and crazy moves with cameras and stuff. And at this moment, the camera just kind of locked off and it's just still and it's at their level on the ground. And I noticed that he seems to keep the camera steady no movement at all during the times when somebody is kind of pouring their heart out and the other person is just listening. And those times are when they're laying in Central Park and he tells the story of the Fisher King, which uh, we'll get into shortly. Um, There's the scene where Jack uh, is saying that he's going to need that he wants to just have some time alone. And Mercedes rule is kind of just tearing into him about like, you know, if if you're going to, leave me that's really awful of you but just do it like don't tell me like don't feed me this story and um there's uh another moment oh yeah when perry's telling lydia about how he's in love with her and how he knows all these things about her where i'm watching it thinking like man she's gonna think that's so creepy but instead it really works for her but you know, yes, it kind of goes between the two of them, but the camera stays still. And oh. uh, it's really, really fascinating the way that the camera acts during different, I don't know, uh, yeah. ways of processing. Whereas like in he the very t- beginning of the movie, Jack is in his radio booth and the camera's moving around all crazy. It's like not stopping at all. You go into these crazy close-ups. And at this point, you know, Jack is just completely removed from the world who knows if he's even thinking about what he's saying to these people who are calling in such as edwin who ends up shooting up the restaurant so uh, i i just really appreciate the way that terry gilliam did that well like you said it it's it's almost like his job as this you know talk show host this shock jock 
is, you know, supposedly to listen to people, right. but he's really just listening to himself. Yeah. He's not, he's not a, he's not Frazier. He's not a, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's not trying to listen and give them advice. He's giving, he's listening to himself do his, his bit, his routine, his, you know, I mean, it was Howard Stern. Right. At the time. At that the time, was, it was yeah. kind now of Now it would be more of a Joe Rogan type of situation. <sighs> I know, right. but that's, that's, ugh, Jack Lucas, yeah. ugh. No, yeah. I know. Yes. Yes. Like I Jack agree. Lucas would have Elon Musk on and they'd smoke a joint together. Fabulous. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, no, I agree with you. Gilliam, ta- he talks about that mostly in that scene between Jack and Anne and how it stays so steadily on right. them. And yeah. doesn't let him out of that frame. Yeah. And I like, I, there's so many, as an artist, like, that's the thing is it's like, as an as an artist who views the world in a unique way, he translates it so well visually. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about his other films and how this is not only among the best, it's also... One of the most, I, I would say it's one of the most. I don't want to say personal because that makes it sound like it's personal to him, right? But mm-hmm. I think it is the most accessible emotionally. It's about more realistic people. Well, it's about yeah. I mean, it's about well, it's about people. It's not about the scenario, like or like yeah. like Baron Munchausen is set pieces. It's, well, I mean, it should also be noted that Terry Gilliam didn't write this one. I, right. It was written by Richard La Gravenes. Is that how you say it? I that's how I think how I said it earlier. Yeah. So this is one that Terry Gilliam didn't write. So it kind of explains a little bit why maybe it is a little bit more I don't know grounded in reality in ways that like obviously some of the earlier ones like Baron Munchausen in Brazil, but like even Twelve Monkeys, uh, which takes place in our real world but the it also takes place in the future this like dystopian future and uh it's kind of not set in reality wait you mean a dystopian future where a pandemic has sent all of (laughs) humanity living underground yeah i know Uh, it's really far-fetched yeah Uh, well i mean (laughs) yes but hopefully we don't no 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 become yeah, we've had good vaccine news this week, so we've had uh, some promising news. But yeah, promising news. Richard Richard Lagravenez has uh, has definitely written some has has done some impressive work. He wrote "The Mirror Has Two Faces." Speaking mm. of Jeff Bridges and Barbara Streisand, Prince right. of Tides, Prince of Tides, um, the Bridges of Madison County, Unstrung Heroes, which is a yeah. great great little movie from the mid nineties. He also wrote "The Ref," which oh, the Ref. Also falls under those movies of, can I watch this because I'm disgusted by Kevin Spacey? Right. Yeah, for sure. Uncle Kevin. All right. So getting back to the Terry Gilliam filmography, I was thinking about other movies that are as character-based. as In Brazil, I think you get in there a little bit with, with yeah. Sam Lowry. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it that's accessible. Munchausen, less so... 12 monkeys not as much though brad pitt is very charismatic i i think he gives a great performance 
Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. It's a great movie. I just don't think it's, it's much more scenario based than character based. And I think Fisher King is much more character based. It's about, it's about redemption and healing for all of them. Mm-hmm. Or at least for these two. I mean, there's definitely backstory with Lydia and Anne <laughs> independently. Right. Yeah. So, um, but uh, let me see. So I, I have a few other, and I know that you wanted to get back to the Fisher King so, myth. Also, just real quick, I Fear and Loathing is, I think, another one where it could be argued that it takes place more in a reality, even though it is a mind-altered reality. Well, I mean, well, the thing with Fear and Loathing is if you have context for the movie, you mm-hmm. know that it's reality. You, you know, know that it, Exactly. It but it happened. is a, a mind-expanded version well, which is why Gilliam yeah. and I, and you know what? I know earlier I said like Twelve Monkeys was my limit. I might have to push it to fear like a uh-huh. a fear and loathing viewing every now and again, or like it's good background. Well, fear and loathing was eighty eight. Oh, sorry, ninety eight. Right, 98, so that was just after Twelve Monkeys, which was ninety five. Yeah. Uh, and then he kind of took a little took a beat. Well, there is probably Brothers because Grimm. Well, was somewhere I, there's in Mother's the Grimm, but that was several years later and also yeah. not very good. But also, no. uh, I think that around that time was when he was going through a lot of the Don Quixote yeah. stuff, yeah. which is like, you know, what is the documentary that's about that? I can't remember what it's the, called right um, now. Oh, oh damn Lost it. in What's La Mancha. Lost in La Mancha, yeah. Yeah. So I think that if you really want to get a, a glimpse about like, who this guy is just watch that yeah did you ever see the eventually released no man who killed don quixote no no me neither no no um you i do remember you turned me on to a movie of his called tideland which oh yeah i don't believe got a theatrical release and i could kind of understand after watching it but i i yeah i i mean jeff bridges is in that one too i don't really remember uh, too much of about it it's almost like this bizarre alice in wonderland because right. the girl's father is a junkie who like overdoses yeah. and she like goes into this imaginary i only watched it once it stood out i just remember seeing it as really bleak mm-hmm. and really like psychological and dark but that would be another really bizarre movie uh, uh 2005 yeah very very bizarre yeah yeah and I guess my last comment on kind of the way that that of Gilliam's style is he definitely shoots hospitals in a very signature oh, way. Oh, very Twelve Monkeys esque hospital. That must have but been like, like very... where where it began for him with the uh, the Twelve Monkeys psychiatric hospital. But yeah, it's like they're they're almost circular. Yeah. And very like dingy. Oh yeah, people yeah. all over the place, just overcrowded like, and randomly like bleeding, wounds. Dro- yeah. open wounds, drooling. Yeah, yeah very. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I mean, I feel like it gives you a when you learn more about Terry Gilliam, it kind of gives you a sense of like, oh, this is how he sees mental health, like really. Uh, you know, well, this is really how he sees people who, you know, have problems as they are. 
you well, know, the way I, he talks about them in the thing, he's like, yes, and this drooling idiot. <laughs> yeah, totally. But it doesn't it doesn't line up with the way that he represents a lot of the uh, the people in the movie. And, and what's interesting, and there's a, a line that Tom Waits has as the disabled veteran where uh, some guy like throws a, a coin and it like completely misses his cup or whatever. Asshole. Didn't even look at you. Well, he's paying so he don't have to look. And uh, I feel like that's sometimes how Terry Gilliam views a lot of these people where it's just like, you know, I am, I'm doing things to, you know, show some, uh, give some attention and show a different side of things. And uh, also in the commentary when he's talking about the sitcom uh, about the mm. the showing the fun side of homelessness, people who love living in this lifestyle as being his way of avoiding people accusing him of doing that, which is just like, that's kind of cheap and shady. And it's like very disingenuous as kind well, of just like, like a, if, a shield to put up. Yeah, it is. It is. It's an, it's, it's hard because I would pr- I would praise a movie like South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut for doing almost the same thing. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the fact that he felt the need to do that. It's like he knew that he was doing something that people weren't going to like. And instead of rethinking things, he just kind of put up a little, you know, facade. Yeah, there's definitely some aspects of this that don't age as well and if it was a more if it was any more realistic i think because it it is it is just at that boundary and like the psychological stuff is shown to be psychological stuff um which i don't know if you had this on on the agenda to talk about but the grand central station waltz scene oh i love it that's the moment where I was just like, this should have been a Best Picture nominee. Yeah. So for anybody who hasn't seen it, uh, they're in Grand Central Station, as we were mentioning before. And they're there because Perry knows that Lydia walks through there every day at five o'clock. And he just wants to kind of catch a glimpse at her. And when he finally sees her, the world becomes the way that Jack sees it. And everybody packed Grand Central Station, everybody turns to the person next to them and they all just start waltzing. And as he is following Lydia as she walks from one end to the other. And uh, it's incredible. The way Perry sees it, right? Oh, did I say Jack? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just Perry. making sure that's what you meant. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry about that. No, uh, it, it is so We're recording this on a Friday scene. night. It's been a, It's been a long one. Oh, yeah. We're recording this on a Friday night in 2020. It's been a long one. (laughs) Towards the end of 2020. um, You know, to put it in context, this was the week that Rudy Giuliani leaked uh, (laughs) from his head. (laughs) Yeah, we're not talking about the Borat uh, clips. Oh, no, no. (laughs) No, 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 no. Anyway, uh, yeah. So it, it, it is filled with some... And I have to think that, first of all, the Terry Gilliam of 1990, 1991, who made this maybe was a kinder, gentler Terry Gilliam or yes. a less or or a, a Terry Gilliam without the benefit of enlightenment, because the that kind of view, the way that that women are represented in the movie and the way that that mentally ill are represented in the movie 
was not so out of place 30 years ago. Sure. I also think that for him, he was there because he was making a movie and Mm -hmm. he did what he had to do to make the movie that he was supposed to make. You know, and, yeah. and I, I I know that he cares a lot about the movie. Uh, he, you can you can hear it in his voice as he when he talks about it, and he has a lot of respect, as we were saying, for the the people involved. The you know anybody responsible for for any of the casting, uh, like you said, wardrobe, set design, everything. He really praises these people for this incredible accomplishment. Uh, this movie really does what it sets out to do. And um, it, it really yeah. does. Yeah. And and I have to just I'm sorry, just to add to like any of these things that we're talking about that haven't aged well. I do think that overall the film itself ages well. And especially if you if you're like me and you watch that movie and you can kind of almost be transported to that, you know, first time seeing it. It was a great place to go. I mm-hmm. I unfortunately had to watch it in a couple of segments. Yeah, but it's long. But it's one that I will revisit. You know, yeah. it won't be too long before I revisit it again. Sure. It, yeah, and even just for the performances, Robin Williams, you see so much range in this. In the moments, like uh, you know, when he is confronting this red knight all the way to when he is laying in the grass in Central Park with Jack and explains the story of the Fisher King, which instead of explaining the story right now and probably botching it, I'm just going to play the clip. Did you ever hear the story of the Fisher King? No. It begins with the king as a boy, having to spend the night alone in the forest to prove his courage so he can become king. Now, while he's spending the night alone, he's visited by a sacred vision. Out of the fire appears the Holy Grail, symbol of God's divine grace. And a voice said to the boy, you shall be keeper of the grail so that it may heal the hearts of men. But the boy was blinded by greater visions of a life filled with power and glory and beauty. This state of radical amazement. He felt for a brief moment not like a boy, but invincible, like God. So he reached in the fire to take the grail, and the grail vanished, leaving him with his hand in the fire to be terribly wounded. Now, as this boy grew older, his wound grew deeper, until one day, Life for him lost its reason. He had no faith in any man, not even himself. He couldn't love or feel loved. He was sick with experience. He began to die. One day, a fool wandered into the castle and found the king alone. Now, being a fool, he was simple-minded. He didn't see a king. He only saw a man alone and in pain. And he asked the king, what ails you, friend? The king replied, I'm thirsty. I need some water to cool my throat. So the fool took a cup from beside his bed, filled it with water, and handed it to the king. And as the king began to drink, 
He realized his wound was healed. He looked in his hands, and there was the Holy Grail, that which he sought all of his life. He turned to the fool and said with amazement, How could you find that which my brightest and bravest could not? The fool replied, I don't know. I only knew that you were thirsty. It's very beautiful, isn't it? I think I heard that at a lecture once. I don't know. Um, professors at <laughs> Hunt. So, uh, I, I mean, I love the way that he talks about it. I love the end of that as he's drifting into, as he's almost drifting back into his, reality. His professorial mind. Because yeah. as you see at the beginning, when the the building maintenance man shows you his belongings, there's a paper uh, on the Fisher King and not the movie, the, the actual the story of the yeah. Fisher King. I feel like there's a different way to like say it that makes it the like the Fisher King. The legend is the name of, of the movie. The Fisher King, the Fisher King is the the legend. <laughs> <laughs> the Fisher King 1991 right or the legend of which Terry Gilliam's which the as, Fisher King as at, well and also as um you I'm sure heard on the commentary and read in trivia Mercedes Rule had written a paper yeah. in college that was that covered the Fisher King myth mm-hmm. and it was what told her that this was like like she had to take this if she like she was going to get this job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I no don't think I read down. any of the trivia. Um, I mean, because I was going to be watching with commentary and I just like and this is just like the Fargo series. I can't be on my phone while watching this movie. It's impossible. <laughs> it's just like it sucks you in that much. So yeah. anyway, uh, an- another couple of stray observations I wanted to bring up. There's the. The kind of like baseball jersey uh, sh- that uh, Jeff Bridges wears that he that you see again in the Big Lebowski. Uh, you also see it, if I remember correctly, and I'm 95% sure I do, in Starman. Do you really? No, when I got to go watch Starman. He's not wearing it, but I think it's when he's looking at the pictures of... You know, the, like the non-alien Jeff Bridges who had right. died. In one of the pictures, he's wearing that shirt. Amazing. I love it. Like, I remembered hearing that like he he used a lot of his own wardrobe in Lebowski. Well, yeah. I mean, the more you learn about him as a person, the more you realize <laughs> how much of the dude he really is. And <laughs> I mean, hats off to Jeff Bridges. I, I, if you're listening, I hope you're doing well. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. He's you know fighting cancer at the moment and uh, hopefully kicking its ass. Yeah, that we don't abide. But yeah, uh, I just and while we're on the topic of Jeff Bridges, the work that he does with his eyes in the Fisher King, yeah, is so good and yeah. so that character. From the, from the time from when he's shock jock Jack Lucas doing the the mud mask oh, in yeah. the bath, right down to when he's you know just drunk and stumbling down by the waterfront. Yeah, 
He's he's incredible. Yeah. Uh and also we we mentioned this earlier but you know his hair also tells a bit of a story. You know at first it's all pulled back. It's completely slicked out except for the little strand in the front. And then after the incident with um with Perry's wife at the restaurant, then you know he's got half of it up and he's got half of it down and he's kind of living in between this reality of his old self and kind of this version of himself that's just falling apart. And then at the very end, when he, uh, when Perry wakes up and they're all singing, I love New I lo- York in June. I like New York in June. How yeah. about you? How about you? So yeah. And then his hair is all over the place and it's completely let down and he is free he is finally well, free. And then when he goes back to make amends with Mercedes Rule, and uh, his hair is, you know, it's cut a little bit shorter. It's it's styled nice. It's clean. He looks good and healthy. So his hair tells a whole story. Well, first of all, as, as Gilliam points out in the commentary, when Jack goes to, to get the grail from the, you know, mm. the billionaire's... Yeah house castle. in new york the the castle real real place mm-hmm. uh in new york and when he does that they talk about how he's wearing parry's clothes and gilliam is like he has now become parry he yeah. has thrown himself into parry's world but i think that that moment is so it's kind of like there's this idea of fate going through it how like jack and parry were fated to come together because Jack was responsible for Perry's wife's death and the the idea of fate that Anne is meant to kind of be the rescuer, the caregiver right. who nurtures uh, as as she references in her um her monologue. And I still remember that speech she makes. That was the clip they played on the Oscars. Oh. Well, that was the best Oscar ceremony of all time, by the way. Yeah, I actually, I, I would like for us to play her acceptance speech right now because it's just so good. Mercedes Rule, the Fisher King. Thank you. I, uh, I went to New York to study acting the summer that I was 21. And like thousands of actors before me and thousands of actors after me, I went through the usual scores of moonlighting jobs and the usual scores of rejection and the usual legions of prophets of doom who were always there and always at the ready to give you the up-to-minute odds against you ever making anything of yourself in this business. And at this moment, <laughs> all of those sort of doleful memories have suddenly transformed themselves into nothing more than the sort of charming and amusing anecdotes from my memoirs. <laughs> I cannot, (laughs) cannot thank you enough. There are a few people I'd like to thank with all my heart very quickly. The great Terry Gilliam, Richard Legravenese, our screenwriter, 
an extraordinary cast. It was an honor to work with them. Roger Pratt, our cinematographer, Steve Randall, Linda Opes, Deborah Hill, Howard Fuhrer, Marsha McManus, my family and my close friends for their patience and their respect and their support. And finally, I would like to thank Albert Inarato and the late Joseph Papp, who gave me my first shot on the New York stage and my first break in the big time, and especially the late, great Joe Papp, who once in a rehearsal for that play nudged me out of the shadow into the light and told me to stay there in no uncertain terms. I have, I do, I will. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. What a treasure. I just love her. But, and then to, to your point about hair, hair actually plays such a big part in all of these characters. I think it's so, uh, with, with Perry, and when you see him as Henry Sagan, mm. he looks much more like the, you know, Robin Williams of Hook. Hook, yeah. Yeah, or of Dead Poets Society. Right. And that very, he's got the glasses on and just yeah. the very conservative styled hair, but now he's the beard, the mm -hmm. unkempt hair. And then when he, even when he takes off his clothes, it's all hair. Oh, yeah. And yeah, and little guy flapping in the wind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's just, you know, it's it's filmmaking 101. It's like it's not just the performances. Like everything has to be a part of it. And uh, I, I mean, I just I just appreciate it. I think it's I love it's details really well. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Terry Gilliam mentions in the commentary, I, a lot of things that we're bringing up are either not necessarily from what he said, but maybe, I don't know, inspired by some of the things that he pointed out, but kind of like taking it further, a few steps further. But one of the things that he mentions is the, you know, Jack smiling. He doesn't smile, doesn't really smile until he's conducting all the patients in the hospital. I like New York in June, except for when they're at the Chinese restaurant and he's really proud of himself for, you know, Perry and Lydia really hitting it off. You know, you see him smile there, but it's like a different smile. It's a guarded smile. But there's, there's also to bring it back to the beginning and it's not a genuine smile at all. But when he's in the bath doing the mud mask yeah, and he's forgive doing his, me. forgive me and yeah. Gil, as Gilliam points out, he, it's like he's, he's the Joker. The Joker. Yeah. But and he does that big with the eyes and that is just shot. So, yeah. So it's such a spectacularly shot film. It really it's, is. It's it's really one that even, you know, having a Blu-ray of it. I would still go see this in a I mean, mm. I wouldn't go see it in a theater now. No, no, no. But, you know, maybe 18 months from now. <laughs> yeah. And, and just real quick, I want to shout out Roger Pratt, who's the cinematographer, um, who yes. also what else has did he done? Um, Tim Burton's 1989 Batman. Hello. Wait, how did I not know that? Because <laughs> if I no, what I was going to say earlier was like, if if this wasn't my entree into like odd, odd filmmaking and like yeah. visionary filmmaking, Batman would have mm -hmm. been. Yeah, so Batman was right before Fisher King, and then uh, he also did he did, did some other stuff with Gilliam, did Brazil, uh, Monty Python's Meaning of Life. After okay. that, you've got um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Twelve Monkeys, Chocolat, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Goblet of Fire, uh, a few things in there. But okay. those were the mo those are the more notable of his uh, of his filmography. Yeah, I feel like I remember Terry Gilliam being 
mentioned as a potential director in the Harry Potter series. Oh, which, that would be interesting or would have been interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that the Harry Potter series Well, he and JK little... he, he and JK Rowling, you know, I think the two of them would oh. get along thick as thieves. <laughs> yeah. Talk yeah. about problematic uh people. <laughs> so, um yeah, I don't know. Dan, is there anything else that you wanted to uh to go over for this one before we launch into our next segment? The music. Right. It was uh nominated for best score, lost to Beauty and the Beast. Um the music is great. A- and it's the, beautiful. The um you know, the repetition of the I like New York in June uh mm-hmm. is is And awesome. Harry Nilsson, like like not long before he died. Oh, was this right? I think he, he died. Him? Well, I think he died in '94. Okay. Um. Yeah. If if anyone has not seen the documentary, who is Harry Nilsson and why is everybody talking about him? So good. Heartbreaking. Okay. Heartbreaking. Sad, but if you like music documentaries, it is one of the best. One yeah. of my favorites. Oh, it's great. And. Um, but yeah, Harry Nilsson was, was not doing well and, but, and then, yeah, he, uh, recorded, I think this might've been his last recording. Mm. I like New York in June. So, uh, I also want to, to, on the subject of music, give a huge shout out to Michael Jeter for the brilliant performance when he goes to, uh, announce to Lydia that she has won the video store membership. Uh, and I'm just going to go ahead and play that in its entirety right now. You must be she. I had a dream, a dream for guess who, Lydia. It wasn't for her, Lydia. It's only for you, yes, Lydia. Some people can get their kicks Watching couple and late night flicks That's okay for some people Who don't own VCRs But Lydia, you've won the grand prize Just think of it all the movies you'll watch are free now. Dramas, westerns, comedies. Wow! Video Spot has the best selection. If you like porno, we're your connection. And everything's coming up videos. Everything's coming up videos. But this time for free. For you, Lydia. For free. Beautiful. What a voice. The pipes well, on Michael I, Jeter. I had not been aware of the backstory. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that it was such like it's such a it's a song from Gypsy. Right. And you feel like, OK, well, they're just, you know, they're not even using any orchestrations or recordings. It's Michael Jeter singing these alternate lyrics to everything's coming up roses yeah about how she's winning a video store membership yeah, everything's coming up videos um, Lydia. If, 
Yeah, if you want porno, we're your connection. <laughs> um, and did not realize that it was so difficult to get Stephen Sondheim's permission right. to use one of his songs and that they really wanted to do it. And I, I guess was it that Gilliam was talking about it with Michael Jeter? Yeah. And Michael Jeter was just like, Oh, I'll call him. We're yeah, friends. We're, we're friends. Yeah. And, yeah. and like, it's the only time that he's al- allowed for anything like this to happen, I think. Something like that. I think so. I want to yeah. say he might have made an exception in for camp, mm. which he makes a cameo in that. Interesting. And although I, although I don't know if they do if they actually perform any of his songs in it. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it. Well, uh, you know, Michael Jeter's performance is just so awesome. And uh, Gilliam uh, mentions this. Pour one out. Pour one out for Michael Jeter. Pour one out for Michael Jeter. But uh, Terry Gilliam mentions how, like, you know, he was in a scene and they're just like, we have to just use him more and more and more because he's just so good. And I'm so When they bring him back. Yeah, well, he's kind of what triggers Jack's Right. So when Jack is like back as a DJ, he's going to this meeting with a TV executive and on his way into John Delancey. Oh, yeah. Uh, On his way into the building, um, the the cops are pulling away or like security guards are are pulling away Michael Jeter's character. And he's like, Jack, Jack, Jack. He's like, I know him. I know him. And Jack just ignores him. But it's haunting him as he's in this meeting. And he just breaks and he just runs out of the meeting and he's, you know, trying to find him. And uh, it's just oh, beautiful. It, it just occurred to me, and I, this is probably just like, you know, what you'd file under the coincidences section on IMDb. Oh, you mean trivia? <laughs> um, John Delancey and Jeff Bridges were in... I think their next movie together, Fearless, oh. where John Delancey played, I think, Jeff Bridges' business partner. Hmm. They're on the plane together, and like Jeff Bridges survives the crash, and John Delancey oh. doesn't. John Delancey, also known as Q to fans of Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, okay, okay. And I think also known as the creepy sexual assaulty gun um OBGYN in the hand that rocks the cradle. Hand that rocks the cradle. Uh yeah, um let's see what else do we have here. Taking care of business. Multiplicity. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um he's always yeah. good at playing like a smarmy douchebag. Yeah. He's kind of got that vibe. Yeah. Yeah. But he was really good as the the TV exec. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so Dan, I know this is this is probably the hardest one to ask this for, but what would you do with this now? You're right. It's tough. This is difficult. Fortunately, being so familiar with the movie, I had some time to just think about different options and like what could be done with it or, or who could do it. And first of all, Terry Gilliam talks about how like this basic story could be told anytime, any place, anywhere. Well, I will say the fifth character in this is New York City. 
Well, yes. Well, <laughs> and, and yes, it's New York's. So but, I, I'm, so I'm mostly well, I'm mostly kidding. I'm mostly kidding. Well, no, I mean, it ends with this. They're in Central Park and the skyline and the fireworks and then this big like musical ending. Right. Like, it's this like and what a musical great ending theater. Too. What does he say? Like, it's, he's like, am I moving the clouds? He's like, no, it's the wind. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Say goodnight, Jack. Good night, Jack. Yeah. It's so, so charming. Yeah. And I, I was just, I was thinking, well, first of all, it's why would you do it again if it's been done perfectly? So it's like, yes, you probably could, but I wouldn't do it differently. Now, if you were going to do it again, I was thinking, well, like a Taika Waititi. Um, Taika Waititi? Yeah, Taika mm-hmm. Waititi would would be an interesting like he's someone who can really blend that the pathos, the the satire, the humor, the surrealism. Mm-hmm. I, I would be interested to see a Guillermo del Toro like <laughs> maybe do a, I mean remake it in you know another language. Uh, I don't know. I was trying to think, okay, well, let's say you did some type of loose remake of it and you cast, um, you, you cast women and, and who would you mm-hmm. have in those roles? And, you know, uh, Kate Blanchett and Kate Winslet <laughs> were like the first two that came to mind. Kate Blanchett as in the Jack role and, yeah. and Kate Winslet in the Parry yeah. role, of course. And then I thought to myself, yeah, you could do a loose remake, but I wouldn't even want to, call it a, i wouldn't want that connection but man would this not work well as a musical i mean my mind went not to musical but to just stage adaptation but you know of course there'd be music in it i i think that the the element of i like new york in june really works in this i mean it could be a different song kind of but i think that had- i could imagine Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, just like, you know, there is a, a song that comes up. And, and you know, when they're in the Chinese restaurant and Jack is just kind of singing, singing the song to Lydia and... Parry. Jeez, yeah. oh, why do I keep doing that? Parry keeps singing the song to Lydia. And Friday. it's just really lovely. And so there's, you know, musical elements, but I wouldn't go as far as to say like big musical. I, when I think about the beats of this story and I think about where songs would go in a musical, I do see opportunities. I see opportunities in, you know, in the opening and hey, get the rights to use snaps. I got the power and, you know, have, have, which at the time was an unreleased song. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I thought I was like I thought I remember that song being a little bit later, but um, you know, do that. Have a song where he's pra- rehearsing, where he's practicing for the thing. You know, where he's doing the "Forgive Me" line right over and over again. Have um him and Anne like there's so many great mo- music musical moments, great scenes between he and Anne that could be turned into musicals. Uh, p- after Parry rescues Jack and brings him to his like his group his his mm-hmm. you know knights of the round table um you know there's another op- i think there's a lot of opportunities for music in this you could really play out the michael jeter uh you know everything's coming up videos which by the way also <laughs> perfect like 1991 that is the 
Like, it's not just New York City. It's- it, yeah, early 90s, it really, really works in that time period. So there's really nothing else that I would do with it. A graphic novel adaptation. Yeah, I think a graphic novel would be really, really good. And Box Brown, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, I Yeah, I don't know if... Uh, Box's style is is how no, I would go I, with this, but maybe he's got some friends. No, he's the I, only per, per, he's the only <laughs> creator of graphic novels that would that I could think of that would possibly yeah be past so. guest from our episode about the wizard. Um, no heavyweights, heavyweights. Oh, sorry, heavyweights. Jeff Rubin was the wizard. That's right, heavyweights. Yeah. Oh, that was so good. Um, yeah, good time. Yeah, I think graphic novel would be good. I mean, my mind, like I said, was was really to. More dramatic stage adaptation um, with, of course, elements of music. But um, mm-hmm. I do like the graphic idea, the graphic novel idea. I do like that, you know, in tone because it's like, really, how do you how do you capture this appropriately without just copying Terry Gilliam? Because the way, like, the way that he directed it really defines the what this movie is, and. You know, it's like you need it, to see it a certain way. Yeah, it could. It, I'm sure that there were other directors who could have done this, and it would have been different and also really good. But there's just all of the elements that were, you know, the four main characters, the director, the cinematographer, like all of those elements that came together. And, and you know what? I'm going to go as far as to say five characters because I do want to include Michael Jeter in there. Yeah, I I don't know if you ever hear his his name in that i don't think he has a name no no but because it's just you know it's somebody that they encounter in the middle of central park like it's just it's not somebody that parry was associated with to our knowledge before then uh, talk about great dialogue there's a there's a great scene when they throw in a well and oh yeah well i just want to um so one thing that Terry Gilliam did say is that, you know, when we first see Jack in the video store, it starts off kind of with a shot going down from the top of these tall buildings down to the bottom floor. And he likens it to, you know, you're in a fairy tale and you're in the woods and these are the trees and you are now in this fairy tale. You are now in this like wood wooden setting and... um that I think really comes back during the scene with Michael Jeter, because that's something that would happen, you know, coming the the way they come across this character is very much like a fairy tale. Well, because he says, oh, there's a, you know, damsel in distress. Yes, or, exactly. And um, another thing, it's funny, it's another thing that Gilliam says, which I, I kind of rolled my eyes at. He talks about movies about the Holy Grail and I think he talks about it as though this and Monty Python and the Holy Grail <laughs> are the only ones. And I think I said out loud to the TV, Last Crusade, Last dipshit. Crusade, bitch. Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, but yeah, yeah. So it's, I'm sorry, I had a thought and I, I totally Holy Grail, Holy Grail. No, it was prior. Last Crusade, uh, dumbass. It was prior to Damsel in Distress, Michael Jeter. Oh, well, so Michael Jeter, right? So, um, and I, I thought it would be a an interesting time. It occurred to me we have never revealed this on Ruined Childhoods, and if you've made it to the end of the episode, (laughs) then you deserve to know because we're talking about the Fisher King and we're talking about knights in in a modern setting. 
John and I are in fact bona fide oh. knights. I was wondering where you were going with this. This is this is true. We were I, knighted sword and all. We were knighted, yes. We are Stropendraga, knights of the noose. Um, yeah. We are, I don't know that we are recognized as knights outside the um, <laughs> limits, city limits of Ghent, Belgium. Right. But... I, uh, I had a, um, the HR department from the place where I work had requested that I fill out a getting to know your coworkers thing. And uh, one of the questions, the last question was, what's something that people that people don't know about you? And uh, I was like, well, I don't think that anybody knows this. And I just said, like, uh, I was knighted in Belgium. I will not elaborate any further. <laughs> and uh, the email went out like yesterday and I got a lot of emails and texts with Sir John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i um it, it's funny and you you had some good ones for for that question uh i was trying to decide between that one and collegiate mascot but that you know it, honestly it's a toss-up it's a t- <laughs> for me yeah it is such, it's a flip a coin you know uh, I, I mean and i i know that you could say the same thing but i think that uh, you know i'm pretty happy that i've you know in the in the time i've been around there's been a lot of interesting weird things that have happened in my life so yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, absolutely and at this point i just i welcome it and enjoy it and i'm just like "Ah, no we were day ending and why we were knighted shortly after a uh a performance by eliza minnelli drag queen performing was it new york new york Yes, which I believe happened after. Did the it night. happen after? I, it's hard to remember the sequence of events of a very, very long yeah. night with a lot of alcohol. It was a yeah. It was uh, you know, as the kids say, it was lit. <laughs> so uh, before we go on to talking about our next episode, uh, I I did want to once again mention our uh, Instagram at Ruined Childhoods Pod. We're also on Twitter at ruined underscore pod. I think that the only followers are each other and maybe a couple other people. So uh, we we are active on there. So check it out. Uh, you might also want to keep an eye out on there because as we are nearing our 100th episode, we're going to be doing some new fun things and, uh, you know, actually releasing some merchandise. So we'll be plugging that on our social media accounts. Some yeah. Some fun things that are... Uh, directly related to the podcast, but also some other things that are can can exist outside of the the podcast, but are inspired by. Ab- absolutely, and John, if I may say, um, while we're on the topic of just kind of like this, the merchandise and merchandising. um hundred merchandising merchandising, which by the way, yeah, shout out to our brother Scott who uh as part of my my birthday gift sent me a Spaceballs face mask. Yeah. Oh. Spaceballs the face nice. mask. Nice. <laughs> um so whenever anyone says nice mask I go merchandise. Merchandise. Uh so anyway, what I uh because this is also going to be our last episode of the our yeah. month of gratitude movies we're grateful for. Um it's almost 2 years ago that um, we, we started this and that right. I, you know, we had that, I said, I was like, ah, I have a, this crazy idea. What do you think? And yeah, almost, 
almost to I know we're not there, but it's it's gratitude month. So I want to say I'm grateful, John, that that you legitimately went for this and (laughs) it it came at a time it came at a time where i was like i feel like i need a hobby maybe something that's away from computers and screens and stuff like that maybe i'll take up bird watching and then dan texts me with this idea for a podcast and i was like sounds like a cool idea and then he was like so you want to do it and i was like Okay, you. This is an idea you want to have have happen with me. Sure, let's do it. And you know, it has been. It's been. It's been really fun. It's been really fun. I mean, I have no idea how to uh, do anything. You know, John <laughs> takes care of everything on the back end. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm grateful for this. It is my. It 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 is that break from everything else and it's such a pleasure to do it and i'm grateful also to anybody who's listening whether you're listening for the first time or whether you've you've listened before i'm grateful to you for for checking us out and yeah um you know we, we'd also we'd be grateful for for you know review rating yeah apple um, podcast <laughs> give us a review and a rating um Tell your friends, tell your family while you're not having Thanksgiving dinner with them. If you're looking for for something. Yeah, no, definitely, you know, be No, this comes out. Yeah, this comes out before that. Yeah, (laughs) I just thought that myself. But yeah, no, be, you know, be safe. Have a great Thanksgiving. If you're not sure what movies to watch, maybe take a look at our archives. And maybe this is episode episode 91, I think. Yeah. This is 91. Well, yeah. let's talk about episode so, 92. Episode 90. Well, so for episode 91, we did a, a ironically oh, or 91. coincidentally or IMDb trivia. We did a movie from 1991 and episode 92 is going to be a movie from 1992. I did a not even different... realize we were going to be doing that. That's amazing. Not, it was just kind of one of those things where until... I was like, I don't know, maybe this one. That is some IMDb trivia for you right there, otherwise known as coincidence. Um, so we're going to be going to 1992, a very different type of movie. We are going to be shipping out with Steven Seagal and the previous year's Oscar nominee, Tommy Lee Jones. It's Under Siege, baby. Under Siege, remember? I am stoked. If you've listened to uh, past episodes, you may have heard a, a certain clip from this movie that will certainly be playing again on the next episode because it's a a monologue that I love from Tommy Lee Jones. This is a wild performance from Tommy Lee Jones that's just so different from the things that you know him from. So I'm just jazzed to revisit it. And we will talk about what it does for this movie on our next episode. Yeah. Well, Dan, as you go off chasing the Red Knight, I wish you a good journey. A good journey to you, knights. Ah, Lydia. She was the most glorious creature under the sun. Thais! Dubari! Gobble! Rolled into one.